this is Jerry DiPiano of Fem Pharma, and you are listening to the Love Mia Vita podcast. My guest today is Ms. Mia Marco, an attorney with Troutman Pepper. And the topic that we're going to discuss is a topic that is a pressing topic, particularly for parents of school-aged and college-aged students, but not necessarily, that doesn't mean that it doesn't include other individuals that are part of institutions of higher education, et cetera. So Ms. Marco and I are going to, to discuss the implications for Title IX, what it is, what it isn't, uh, the intersection of the Cleary Act. But first, I'd like to have Ms. Marco, Mia, introduce herself. Tell us a little bit about your background, Mia. Sure. Um, hi, Jerry. Thanks for having me today. So as you mentioned, I'm an attorney at Troutman Pepper. Um, I work out of our firm's Philadelphia office. It was formerly known as Pepper Hamilton. I'm an associate in the firm's business litigation group. So I work on all different types of business disputes, commercial litigation, but then I have a um, sub set of my practice that's focused on higher education clients. And we do a lot of different things for colleges and universities. Um, provide counseling, uh, litigation services, investigations. And then as part of that practice, um, a large part relates to Title IX litigation and investigations. Thanks for sharing that. I'm just curious, what propelled you to go to law school? Tell us a little bit about your educational background, how you, how you arrived at uh, Troutman Pepper as an attorney. Sure. Um, so I sort of always knew I wanted to go to law school. Uh, my grandfather was a lawyer in Philadelphia and my uncle. So I had that sort of mindset um, from family experiences. And then I also knew I liked to read and write and was told that's mostly what lawyers do, which is accurate, um, at least litigators. So um, it sort of was like always the natural career path for me. I went to college um, and then went straight to law school. I went to Villanova University. And at Villanova, um, so I played field hockey in college. I was a college athlete. I also coached um, after college. And Villanova had a big sports law um, program. So I always sort of had this interest in Title IX from the sports perspective. Um, and then my career path to Troutman was a little nonlinear. I, I didn't start out litigating. I worked at another large firm. I was doing transactional work. I realized this is not for me. I always went to law school to be a litigator. So let me switch paths. Um, I went to a smaller boutique firm in Philadelphia after that to get some litigation experience, but I was limited in the type of work I was doing. I wanted a broader practice and I had this higher ed slash title nine interest. So I ended up at what was Pepper Hamilton at the time. Now it was Troutman Pepper. Um, and so I've gotten to work in the higher ed space, which has been really great. Um, and it's interesting because for me, Title IX as an athlete, I always thought of it, you know, as protecting female athletes' rights in colleges. But as my practice has grown at Troutman, it's much more focused on the sexual harassment and sexual assault um, aspect of Title IX. And I think a lot of people might, you know, initially associate Title IX with sports, but it's much broader than that. And really in the last decade or two, the emphasis has much more been on sexual assault and sexual harassment and protecting students' rights um, in relation to those that type of misconduct as opposed to just sports. Um, but Title IX is really interesting. And so I'm just, you know, it's really exciting to be able to um, work on these types of cases and advise clients about issues that come out of Title IX work. 
So in case it wasn't obvious, I wanted to invite Mia, who is definitely a woman on the move. Um, she's been on the move for most of her academic career and obviously beyond that, uh, as she continues to practice law and to explore various areas where she can lend her expertise. But this is part of uh, the Fem Pharma I Love Mia Vita series that is women delivering the difference. And Mia is clearly one of those strong women who is delivering the difference. So really excited to have you. I thought we could take a step back. You shared, you, you shared a lot of information about Title IX and the breadth of Title IX. Perhaps we could just take a little bit of time to talk about the history of Title IX. So how did, how did we end up with Title IX? What was the impetus behind this? And then maybe we can talk a little bit about some of the other aspects of Title IX that you shared, which is it, it's broader. So it's beyond Title IX, which includes some of the, the issues around safety, um, safety for women, safety for all persons on college campuses. But uh, maybe we could take a little bit of a step back, talk about its history. Sure. So <clears throat> Title IX is a statute that is part of the education amendments of 1972. And at a high level, it protects against sex-based discrimination at any school that receives federal funding. Um, so it actually might make sense just to read from the text of the statute because it's actually very short. Um, and the operative language says, no person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. So there are some carve outs in the statute for military schools or religious schools in some instances, but that's that's basically it, that's the meat of the statute, um, which I find interesting. And I think people might find interesting given its importance and its scope and the impact it's had, it's less than 40 words. It's, you know, it's not a, a, a very detailed statute. Um, and it was passed, as I said, in 1972. So it just actually had its 50 year anniversary. Um, and I have to confess, before I started doing Title IX work at Troutman Pepper, I didn't know a lot about the history of Title IX. I think I can admit that I probably took it for granted as a female athlete. You know, I was born well after it was passed. So I sort of got the benefits of the Title IX protections without really having to um, think about, you know, why. They were needed in the first place. But <clears throat> Title IX, the impetus for Title IX was coming out of this, the feminist movement in the 60s. Um, <clears throat> women in the 70s lobbied Congress to add sex as a protected ca class category. So um, it was basically enacted to fill a gap that existed between Title VII of the Civil Rights Act and Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, which protected against discrimination for race, color, natural origin, um, but not sex. Um, and then I, th this is a fun fact that I had learned um, when I started doing the Title IX work. So there's a, a number of people that are obviously instrumental in getting Title IX passed, but there were two women in particular, um, Edith Green, who was a Senator and then representative Patsy Mink. And uh, Patsy Mink was actually the first woman of color and the first Asian American woman elected to Congress, which I think, you know, is so incredible that this monumental bill um, was due in part to a woman who was on her own, like break, breaking through glass ceilings and um, setting history. Um, so ultimately, the Title IX was passed in 1972. 
Um, it was signed into law by President Richard Nixon. And then it sort of had this very interesting and windy um, path to where it is today. A lot of uh, regulation came out in the 80s and 90s. Um, since obviously the text of the statute is very short, the Department of Education gave more information to colleges and universities about what exactly was or was not a violation of Title IX. But in its infancy, the emphasis was on athletics. Um, and it wasn't until the 1990s where the government really made it clear that the prohibition on sex discrimination included both sexual harassment and sexual assault. Um, and the thought behind that was <clears throat> that students who are um, suffering from this type of misconduct, their educational, their, their entitlement to an equal educational access would be impaired. Um, so Title IX sort of, some people say expanded, some people say that was the intent, but in any event, it was clear to colleges and universities starting in the 90s that Title IX was more than just about athletics. Um, and then <clears throat> sort of not a lot happened in the 90s or the early 2000s, but then in 2011, the Department of Education came out with what is referred to as the Dear Colleague Letter, and that's really when things started to change. Um, there was a lot of activism um, from victims' rights groups about <clears throat> um, Title IX and whether schools were or were not in compliance. And what the Dear Colleague Letter said was that if colleges did not take these Title IX cases seriously that involved sexual harassment and sexual assault, they didn't properly investigate them or adjudicate them, that they could be violating Title IX and lose their federal funding. So that's when colleges and universities really started changing um, the way they investigated these cases and adjudicated the cases. And then even the last 10 years or so with the changing administration, there's been sort of, there was a victim's rights advocacy from 2011 to 2016. And then that sort of shifted to respondents rights groups in 2016, as it tracked the administration change, you know, and now we're sort of starting to see the pendulum swing back a little bit under the new administration. And um, the regulations have sort of followed suit um, as the administrations have changed. So it's given colleges and universities a lot to think about um, and a lot of you know work to do to make sure that they're in compliance as the regs have come out. Losing federal funding is a, a very big deal for colleges and universities, but it's even a bigger deal if parents feel that their children are entering an institution of higher learning where their ability to actually learn in a safe and healthy environment impairs that ability. And so expanding that to include things like discrimination upon, uh, based upon um, sex, uh, sexual orientation, et cetera, is really something that is a very, it's a flashpoint. Uh, it's very important. Um, it's very important that the inclusivity be part of this conversation. So when we think about populations, it's not solely women. I know we're, we focus on women and women's health care and women's safety, health and empowerment, but it includes all persons, men, women, and persons who define themselves differently and certainly all members of the LGBTQI plus community. And that is something that has been evolving over time. But we can take a little bit of a step back there. There was actually another pivotal point um, in the history 
of how parents and others can ensure that colleges are keeping track of what goes on yeah. within the institution. Um, and that is the story of Jean Cleary and the Cleary Act and how that came about. Um, just as a, a footnote, <clears throat> and for anyone who's listening who is still a part of the Cleary organization, I was um, part of the board of the Cleary organization a number of years ago. I was actually their vice chair, so full disclosure. Wonderful, wonderful group of individuals. I have tremendous respect for the Clearys and what they did, but um, perhaps you can share a little bit of information about the Cleary Act, um, Jean Cleary, and how this intersects with Title IX. Sure. So the Cleary Act, the full name of the Cleary Act is the Jean Cleary Disclosure of Campus Security Policy and Campus Crime Statistics Act. And that was signed in 1990s. You're right. This was another pivotal time in the trajectory of Title IX and <clears throat> women's rights. Um, and essentially what the Cleary Act does is it requires colleges and universities that participate in federal financial aid programs to keep and disclose uh, information about crimes that happen on or near their respective campuses. Um, and sort of unlike Title IX, which I think has a maybe a happier, um, or definitely has a happier inception, the, the Cleary Act um, tragically came out of the death of a student at Lehigh University in the late 80s. And uh, her name was Jean Cleary. She was raped and murdered on campus. And <clears throat> after her death, her parents, um, were the ones who spearheaded passing this law because they had learned that there were, I think, almost 40 different violent crimes that had happened near Lehigh University in the three years prior to her death. So her parents and others, um, the thought process was that if Jean Cleary had known about um, these types of violent crimes, had had access to the information, if the school provided it to her, you know, perhaps she would not have attended Lehigh or she would have acted differently and it could have prevented her death. So <clears throat> the intention behind the Cleary Act is to keep things like that from happening in the future by providing students who are applying to schools access to this type of information that was not kept um, before that time. And I guess in terms of the intersection with Title IX, it, it really goes hand in hand. Um, I think you know it's really just another way to protect women's, excuse me, protect students, but mostly, you know, it seems to happen in the context of women, but protect them from these types of both sexual harassment, which can be, you know, um, not a severe or real sexual violence by providing them with information about what's going on and then providing the infrastructure and support if something does happen, supportive measures, and then ultimately, you know, supporting students through an adjudication and investigation process to, um, um, <clears throat> handle those types of complaints as they come and, and ultimately, you know, issue is necessary sanctions to the, the respondent student who committed or might have committed those types of acts. So I know you mentioned, um, you mentioned women and um, we talk about gender-based violence and, and you can't ignore the statistics. Although we, right. we talk about all students, men, women, persons who identify themselves as something other than male or female or, or what have you. Um, but it's really the, the statistics demonstrate that it is largely young women who are victims of this type of harassment, intimidation, and violence. So it's 
it's natural that one would um, contemplate that this these are acts that are largely going to be acts mm -hmm. that are committed against women. And so it's it's not surprising um, that that would be a flashpoint and that would be an area where we want to pay attention. And one of the things that we take away from this is how to cultivate an atmosphere of respect um, for all students, uh, irrespective of their orientation um, on college campuses. And <clears throat> gathering that information is very important. It's very important for the student. It's very important for the parent. But there are also some implications for members of those institutions that are not necessarily students. Um, I believe that's correct, Mia. Does this apply more broadly to all members of these institutions, faculty, administrators? In terms of Title IX, yes. Um, the Title IX protections include employees of protections and then the potentially violations of Title IX. It's not limited to students. And the Clery Act is obviously broader than students because it's tracking all different types of violence that happen on or off campus nearby. So, you know, it could be just a local um, violent crime or hate crime that occurs that might not be student on student or teacher on student. Um, the, the tracking is brought more broader than that. But yes, Title IX, um, the protections and the implications of Title IX apply to, to professors, faculty, um, just like students. So as an example, if you are a faculty member at an institution of higher learning and you have a supervisor or someone that is in a position of power that is uh, intimidating you or sexually harassing you, that would be a violation of Title IX? So if it's um, employee on employee, then it would actually be covered under Title VII. Um, but if it's uh, employee professor on student, then that's when Title IX um, comes into play because Title IX protects students' right to access education free from sexual discrimination. So recently I had um, I had a parent of a college-age student who approached me and had said that her daughter, um, who was a freshman, had been asked to have coffee with one of her professors. <clears throat> her professor happens to be male, so it's male and female. And he's a relatively young professor, so she decided that perhaps he just wanted to befriend her. Now, she's 18, and I think he's probably in his 20s. I don't know exact, the exact age. Mm -hmm. But the mom's question was, if her daughter had refused, and that had implications for his ability to be objective about his assessment of her, because it's there, you know, there's an objective component to assessment, and then there is a quantitative assessment, right? And the mom was really concerned about that. And I said, well, <clears throat> did she already have the coffee? She did have, she had coffee. Um, and it was clear that his intentions were more than just platonic. It wasn't just getting to know the student. And I suggested that that probably was something that should be referred to the Title IX officer. I believe that is a striking example of um, potential intimidation, right? So how does this, how does this work? Let's, let's, um, let's talk about what are the ways in which colleges both inform students 
and others, because they re it really needs to be a broad dissemination of what is what is Title IX, what is the Clery Act, what is the implication for all members of the university community. Then there is the, then there is the student, and then there are the parents of the student, right? So there are lots of constituencies here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think two things. Um, in terms of providing information to students, um, the schools have obligation under the regulations to provide this type of information to their students and then to parents. Um, and most colleges have a Title IX website that has a copy of their Title IX policy. And then, <clears throat> so that's a bit publicly available. Um, but then typically if something and students who get onboarded through orientation will have Title IX training and they'll learn about the resources available to them. But then also if an incident does arise and there's an allegation of misconduct, then schools also have an obligation in responding to that complaint to also reiterate the supportive measures that are available and the resources students have both on campus and off campus. You know, you can always refer, colleges routinely refer students to police enforcement if it, you know, depending on the allegations, if that's necessary. Um, in addition to counseling services, um, there's things called no contact orders, which allows the student who's making the complaint to avoid seeing the student who um, was accused with the misconduct. So there's all different things that um, schools can do in reaction, should do in reaction to um, Title IX complaints under the current regulation. And I think to go back to the example that you started with, um, it's a really interesting example. And I agree with you that it could have the potential to turn into a Title IX violation, um, but it highlights one of the current issues in Title IX that's um, being debated right now based on new regulations that came out from the, um, the Biden administration that have changed or may be changing the regulations that came out under Trump. Um, and just to take a further step back, there's three sort of categories currently of sexual harassment and what, what is qualified as sexual harassment on campus. And the first <clears throat> is sort of the quid pro quo example that I think most people um, are familiar with. I, I think of it as sort of like the legally blonde example. There's the professor who's saying, I will give you X in exchange for sexual conduct that is unwanted. Um, from the student's perspective. That's, that's I think, everyone understands that that's sexual harassment um, and it's sort of the sexual harassment we've seen over the years. Then there's another category that's the sexual violence that I also think is um, easily determinable to be sexual violence. You know, it's the dating violence or um, it's really intense stalking or um, it's another type of sexual assault that is very egregious. And then there's this third category um, that I think could be, not, this is not a legal term, a little more squishy because um, it talks about sexual harassment in terms of being severe, severe, pervasive, and objectively offensive. And currently under the regulations, it needs to be all three. So in that example you gave, it might not be pervasive because it was one incident. Under the new regulations, the um, conjunctive is being changed to the disjunctive. So it's an or, either or, or. So it could be severe, pervasive, or objectively offensive. So under the current um, draft of the regulations that may be enacted, they're under re review right now, um, that example that you gave could be considered sexual harassment if it's 
um, so severe or just objectively offensive to a student. So it's there's this tension right now, um, sort of, you know, people that are paying attention to these issues um, don't really know where it's going to land, but it could change the landscape of Title IX even further. These are, <clears throat> so that's really good information. I was unaware of some of those changes and I'm sure most of the folks that are listening to this, unless they work uh, in an institution of higher learning um, and are having, are part of tr the training that's disseminated, would probably not appreciate that. So thank you for sharing that. I know that there are um, training programs that uh, are provided to institutions of higher learning and this is really dating uh, back to my uh, work with um, the Cleary organization as a trustee and board member. Can you share a little bit about the uh, the training that is provided and to whom so that that those listening can understand that it's not just that this is an act and universities just, you know, let parents know, well, we have Title IX and we, you know, we're very sensitive to Title IX issues, but it, they this information is broadly disseminated and there are a whole group of stakeholders within the institution that are responsible for making certain that there is both the reporting aspect and then there is also the counseling aspect and then there's the investigation. So this is a pretty big deal at colleges and universities. Definitely, it's a big deal and colleges and universities take it very seriously. Um, they'll have, you know, usually there's a group that is responsible for handling Title IX issues. Um, there's usually a Title IX coordinator who heads up that group, and that's usually the first person that a student is sent to if there's a complaint. Um, but the, the Title IX group handles training other faculty, staff, people um, on campus to understand what these issues are. If a student approaches them, you know, say a student feels as if they have been subjected to sexual harassment and doesn't know who to go to. You know, maybe they just, they, they didn't really pay attention during their freshman orientation and they can't find the resources. They go to a professor or someone else they trust on campus. Um, those professors are trained with how to respond, who to tell the student to go to and um, to serve as a resource a lot of times a confidential resource to the student. Um, so, you know, it's I, I completely agree with you. It's not an act that sort of was drafted and enacted and then is on the books and no one pays attention to. Schools spend a lot of money and a lot of time focused on Title IX from the training to then if something happens, um, responding to that and then going through the investigation process. Usually schools will hire a third party investigator to handle the investigation, which includes investigating witnesses in addition to the complainant and the respondent. And then <clears throat> depending on whether the complainant wants to move forward or if the allegations are so severe that the school feels they have to move forward, then the school will hold a hearing. Um, and you know that is timely, has costs associated with it. So schools are very invested um, in Title IX and the obligations that they have under Title IX and they're paying a lot of attention to them. And then you mentioned that during uh, student orientation, um, there is, there's a program where students are actually brought in and they receive this sort of information. But let's face it, you're freshmen, uh, you're probably... Yes. A lot of other things, uh, you know, where you're going to live, how you're going to find your your classrooms, etc. 
and having fun and you want to have fun. You Maybe the first time that you're in uh, the adulting world, um, yes. <laughs> post-COVID, you're not living at home in your parents' basement doing classes <laughs> online. Let's, let's hope that continues, that our students are able to live and work on campus. But you're you're not really focused much on this. And so you lose track of what this really means. And then you get into an awkward situation. And this these are um I'm I, I know of a number of awkward situations where um students find themselves uh, at a party um and they consume too much alcohol and things happen. And there's the whole the question of when when is it sexual assault or sexual harassment or sexual intimidation? So this is between students. Mm -hmm. And when is it, um, when it, when isn't it is the question. And there are very specific ways in which parents should guide their students. So this is really a reminder for, for parents to remind their students about the whole issue of what may be considered a Title IX violation by one student on another. Definitely, and I think, um, you know, really the biggest factor in those equations is consent. And um, even in the last few years, maybe the last couple of decades, you know, the the idea of consent has changed. Um, it's not, uh, <clears throat> parents have to explain to their children that consent, you know, has to be obtained for each act. It's not just um, consent for one, means consent for all. And um, usually in, in a lot of these cases that go forward with um, a hearing or ultimately end up in litigation in courts, that's one of the focuses was their consent. And I agree with you when alcohol is added to the mix, it makes things much more complicated and difficult. Um, and so I think, you know, as parents that are advising both their uh, female or male or non-binary children that, you know, consent matters, you have to be thinking about these issues on both sides or all sides. Um, and I think um, one thing, one tidbit, tidbit that um, I think gives uh, people some comfort is that a lot of Title IX policies have an amnesty uh, provision in them, which basically says that a school is not going to go after a student if they make a complaint based on Title IX and a sexual harassment um, <clears throat> incident, and they also were drinking and they were underage. Um, so I think students and parents should understand that if something happens to you when you're at a party and you're not 21 and you've been drinking, you shouldn't feel as if you can't speak up because you've been breaking the law <laughs> by drinking underage. And that is actually a very good example because let's face it, there are students that enter the university when they are, some may skip their senior year of college, of high school rather, and so they start when they are 17, sometimes 16, very precocious, they're very intelligent, and potentially unprepared emotionally, developmentally for what they are about to encounter. It can include not just alcohol, but it can include uh, drugs, um, you know, it doesn't have to just be alcohol, and they, because they are young, they feel that they have broken the law, uh, whether it's using um, a, a drug that uh, illegally, uh, marijuana, what have you, or whether it's alcohol. If they had their, um, if they did not provide consent and there was a sexual misconduct by another party, whether it's same sex, opposite sex, it doesn't really matter. This is something that 
they should consider reporting, uh, particularly if there was impairment because there was no judgment, right? So there's a, a potential impairment of judgment about what was to happen. There, there's one additional aspect to this. We, I was thinking about bullying and hazing. Mm -hmm. And is that part of Title IX? Um, is that, does that fall under the Clery Act? So to the extent that the bullying or hazing relates to a student's sex, then yes, um, it will, for Title IX at least, because the, the language of Title IX is specific to sex-based discrimination. Um, in terms of Clery, I don't believe that that would need to be reported unless it arose to the level of like a hate crime um, type violent crime um, that was based on the person's sex, then the school would have to report it. Um, but I, yeah, I agree that hazing and uh, that type of stuff, you know, on, on um, college campuses is also another thing that parents need to think about, especially related to Greek life. Um, and <clears throat> another, I guess, piece of that is that sororities and fraternities don't have an exemption to Title IX because they're, you know, like this other entity. Um, they're allowed to be single sex organizations under Title IX. There's a carve out for them to exist, but members of a sorority or a fraternity still have to comply with Title IX and can be found in violation of Title IX if they're committing an act on or near campus um, that would violate Title IX. So if you go to, if your son or daughter ends up at a fraternity or a sorority party and uh, they are subjected to inappropriate behaviors and that includes sexual coercion or does it include things like coercing them to drink um, beyond their, you know, a safety limit? I should say there probably shouldn't be drinking, period, but we don't want to do that. But, um, you know, there are many examples of uh, where Greek life turns into, I almost refer to it as an oxymoron, <laughs> because we know that there have been a number of deaths that have resulted uh, from hazing. Um, the Piazza case is one. Uh, good friends of mine, the Diversalis, uh, are another uh, family that has been impacted. And uh, just a shout out to Julie and Gary Diversely, who have been champions um, in this regard to stop hazing on college campuses uh, after the death of their son, Gary Jr. Uh, so bad, bad, bad behavior, bad actors, uh, they're not uh, going to be exonerated if they are part and parcel of this kind of behavior. Definitely, and I should say that colleges and universities, you know, the, um, the work that they're doing to protect their students isn't exclusive to Title IX or the Clery Act. Of course, you know, there's student conduct um, policies and schools are outside of Title IX looking into these types of instances and protecting students in other ways. It just doesn't necessarily follow under Title IX. You know, it's, it's similar to thinking of um, if there's a plagiarism violation, there's a, still a process that the school goes through to handle those instances, just like they would handle um, hazing or something else that happens that's misconduct on campus, but it just doesn't always follow, fo follow under Title IX because it's not necessarily sex-based. Those are important considerations for parents. This, this can be a very um, difficult time. On the one hand, it's a joyous opportunity when you feel that your son or your daughter um, has been launched and they're about to embark on the next 
milestone in their academic career and possibly in, in their development, their emotional development. So the most important thing that we hope for as parents is that our children are safe and they are in an environment where that gives them the latitude to really develop themselves academically, emotionally, professionally, but without the safety aspect none of the rest of it matters. Yes, definitely. So this is a really important conversation for parents. And most of you who are watching or listening to this podcast would appreciate that uh, individuals like Mia, Marco, and Trout and Pepper get involved in this really at the worst possible moments when, um, when there is a case that needs to be adjudicated. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about how that process works. So are you in a part of an independent body that does investigations for these colleges and universities? Yes, we, we do both. So um, sometimes we'll be hired by a college or a university to investigate. For example, um, there might be a student group that's alleging that the school has not been following their Title IX policy as they should be. So it might not relate to one specific incident of misconduct, but an overall failure to provide the support um, to the students. So that's the allegation by a student group. So we would come in and do an investigation and provide a report to the school and, you know, perhaps recommendations for improvement. Um, and a lot of times these schools are proactive about um, sort of self-assessing because they want to get it right too. They don't want to have a constituency group on campus that feels as if they're not following Title IX. Um, another way we get involved is if a school gets sued. So if a case goes through the internal Title IX process at a school and it ends in sanctions for the respondent or perhaps no sanctions for the respondent, um, a lot of times there's always one party that's not happy. And so they tend to sue the school saying that the school did not follow their own Title IX policies um, as they should have. You know, Perhaps the student says if it's a respondent case that the school didn't let them interview a witness or didn't interview a witness that would have been key or didn't um, look at certain evidence. So we'll be brought in to defend the university against um, those type of cases and provide that support to the college or university. Or, you know, sometimes a, a student um, will bring a case against a school um, if it's a complainant saying that they were <clears throat> sexually harassed on campus and it was the school should be liable for that sexual harassment because the school, the test is if it was deliberately indifferent to what was going on. Um, so there's a couple of Supreme Court cases that have said that schools can be personally liable for a third party's misconduct if it's they've basically turned a blind eye. Um, they knew what was going on and they didn't do anything to address it. So that's when we get brought in if there's a case brought in federal court relating to those types of claims. So you are primarily brought in by the institution and not necessarily by the individual. What about individuals' rights? So let's let's assume that for the moment that someone, um, that there's an investigation, that the investigation is conducted by members of the college or the university um, community. The question is whether there's independence, right? So to a large extent, my understanding is that this is a group of individuals that is part of the university community. And so you feel that you are being, you as the person that, that is considered the perpetrator of this crime, have been unfairly um, <clears throat> investigated and 
what what are your what are your rights? I mean, what is that process like? Sure. So there's there's two things in that. One, um, it's that you've actually touched on another, I guess, uh, area of the law that continues to evolve under the current regulations. Um, I believe that schools have to hire an independent investigator and that person can't serve as the ultimate adjudicator or decision maker on the sanctions. But I think under the current regulation that's switching back and schools can have autonomy to choose who investigates and who um, makes the ultimate decision. And that could be the Title IX coordinator themselves. So it's another um, push pull of this, you know, complainants rights versus respondents rights and where due process fits into that. But uh, there are a number of law firms and um, attorneys who represent students, respondents who bring these types of claims. And their argument is essentially that we had a contract with the school. Um, that contract is evidenced by the Title IX policy that says the school is going to do X, Y, Z. The school did not do X, Y, Z. Um, so I did not get a fair shake and the school should overturn the sanction or, you know, a lot of times a student is suspended or expelled. Um, so that's the relief that the student is asked for to be, you know, have their suspension taken off their transcript or the expulsion overturned and allow them to continue at school. Um, so there's other attorneys that handle that, but my firm primarily handles um, it from the college or university side. So the message here, I believe, is parents teach your children well. Yes. <laughs> an old song but it still has applicability today that um that we as parents are the the ultimate or the primary educators of our students of our children uh, as they embark on the next part of their journey and this is not a trivial matter it's very important um and when you think about bullying and you know there's um, sadly there's a lot of bullying and a lot of discrimination that still exists among various populations your kids should be kind. They should be respectful, and this is a this is a basic. This is this is a basic um, kindness, respect on all levels, um, and consent. So I think consent is an operative word here, uh, particularly as you know kids are free. They're you know outside the the governance of their parents, no curfews, lots of, you know, lots of freedom, lots of liberties, but it needs to be responsible because there are important points to be taken from this, which is in, in terms of Title IX, this can really have a significant impact on your student. Um, and it, from a safety perspective, it's also important that parents communicate to their students that when they enter this community, if they are subjected to bullying, harassment, intimidation on, on sexual intimidation, they have a right to approach authorities within the university community. And even as they may occur, you know, we're based just outside of Philadelphia. So there are lots of institutions of higher learning here. And sometimes crimes are committed between students at different institutions. Right. And there's, there are ways in which Title IX officers can communicate with one another to share that information so that if a student at University XYZ, which is in one part of the city, is being harassed or intimidated or has been harmed by a person who is in the suburbs, let's say, 
um, they have a way to communicate with one another and, and um, the process can work and does work. And I, I have a lot of respect. I am a board member of a couple of universities in the area. And I will say that they do a great job of enforcing the Title IX provisions. Uh, they're very fastidious on the Clery Act. So I feel really good about that. Um, what I've seen uh, just in my little microcosm, but Mia, this has been really, really helpful, informative, and we are so grateful uh, that you are sharing your knowledge with our community. Uh, men who may be listening, women who are probably listening because that's our demographics, women. But um, we look forward to more of these podcasts with you. And um, thank you. And so just coincidental. So this is the Love Mia Vita podcast. <laughs> yes. <laughs> with, with my guest, Mia Marco of Troutman Pepper. Mia, thank you so much. Be well, uh, take good care. And this is Jerry DiPiano from Fem Pharma and the Love Mia Vita podcast signing off. Until next time, please be well, take care, and blessings. Thank you, Jerry, so much. It was so good seeing you. Likewise. Thank you.